0: All right. Well, welcome back, Hope Brooklyn. Uh, Welcome again. Uh, Thanks for joining us, tuning in with us. My name's Russ. I'm one of the pastors. And um, uh, if you missed last week, uh, which was many of us, (laughs) uh, we kicked off a new series that we are calling The Light of the World. The Light of the World. And uh, the idea behind this series is is really simple. Uh, It's a little blunt, but it's simple. That We live in a day and age right now uh, where there are all sorts of voices, all sorts of um, political powers in a lot of ways, all sorts of people who are who are espousing a gospel, they are telling us if we believe in them, if we put the trust of our hearts in them, if we, if we offer up our lives for their cause alone, we will experience salvation and peace and, and, and though, as we 'll talk about in the course of this series, though there is a, a, a theological concept called common grace, which says. People do have uh, various degrees of light and enlightenment in them. Though that's true, what we are saying, because it's been said to us and passed down, is that in Jesus Christ, in Jesus of Nazareth, the Jew who lived 2,000 years ago, who was a poor Judean, in him alone, we see the complete light of God. We see his fullness. And when we turn our eyes toward him, when, when our hearts care more about him than anything else and anyone else, then everything else falls in its rightful place. Then we are completely full of light. And really the, 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 uh, the idea for this series comes from 2 Corinthians chapter four. 2 Corinthians four, and this is, this is what we read. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The idea is that the light that you need to live a full and abundant and satisfied, peaceful life is found exclusively in Jesus Christ. And it's available to you today. Anything else to some degree or another is an obstruction, is an obstacle that is hindering the fullness of God's light from taking residence in you. Uh, Obstacles in our hearts, obstacles in our past, obstacles in our beliefs, our societies, they're all limiting the light. And, And just so you know, I mean, this, this, this verse does not mince words. This series is going to be offensive. And today I want to go ahead and prepare all of us. Today it might be very offensive. And it's important if you're about to be very offended, if I'm about to be very offended, to recognize and to build a historical case that it's not me who's trying to offend. It's actually found in Jesus himself. Jesus in his own day was very offensive. And if we're truly seeing him in our day, we should also likewise be exposed. And so just to, to recap last week a little bit, uh, the, what we opened with is that uh, when Jesus begins his ministry in all four gospel accounts, he actually preaches an inaugural sermon. It's a very short sermon, but this is his message. It's, it's one verse After after he's tempted in the desert by Satan for 40 days, uh, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he rejects Satan's temptations, he begins his public ministry. And he starts the same way. He shows up, and this is what he says. He says, the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of heaven is among you. It's here. It's drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. That was Jesus's first sermon. Catch that. It's not, hey, I love you. His first sermon was not, hey, hey, Israel, God loves you. His first sermon was not, hey, I forgive you or you're perfect just the way you are. His first sermon, the message he wanted to get across to his people is God's kingdom is here. Repent, join it, believe in it today. And, and what we said last week, and again, quickly, I wanna go into it. That phrase, kingdom of heaven, it's actually, uh, it's, it's a very um, physical phrase. So for someone to hear it, it's not abstract. If you heard it in the first century, very physical, um, very physical ideas would, would come to mind. It's sort of like the same thing if, if I said, the American dream is here. That phrase, American dream, it has certain ideas. I would think houses and cars and jobs and stuff like that. It was the same thing in the first century. For Jesus to say, the kingdom of God is here. First century Jews would hear it a certain way. And really, they would just hear it like this. If you sum it all up, they would hear national revolution. When Jesus says, the kingdom of God is among you, they would hear zealous holy war. There are three tenets, and this was put forth by N.T. Wright, that are present in that phrase, kingdom of God. That is, Yahweh's returning to his temple in Jerusalem. The glory of Yahweh returns to the temple. Israel, that is scattered across the nations, they return to Israel. They return to Jerusalem and set up uh, the kingdom of God. And Israel's enemies, which at that point in the first century would have been Rome, are defeated and thrown off. So when Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of God is here, every first century Jew thinks, okay, we're going to war. Grab your arms, grab your swords. And N.T. Wright, he really explains this. It's a longer quote, but this is what he says. He goes, as we have seen, the tradition of zealous armed resistance belongs within Israel's stories from its very earliest days. One only has to think of the exodus and the conquest, meaning the plagues, the judges of David, of Phinehas and Elijah, who were seen as heroes who burned with zeal for Yahweh and his law and who took decisive and violent action against pagans outside Israel and renegades within. These examples of violent resistance, among others, are strong evidence not just for the nationalist fervor which might accompany any revolutionary moment in any nation, any period of history, but for the very specific Jewish hope that through the final great battle, the kingdom of Yahweh would at last come to be on earth as it was in heaven. This tradition was a firmly fixed part of a major first century Jewish perception of reality. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, first century Jews immediately think, and they have it in their history books, we're going to war. And I just wanna pause there and, and say, let's not pretend like you and I don't have similar impulses within us. Let's not pretend that like you and I don't feel a similar revolutionary zeal. In this age, in this time, like we're being called to wage God's war in the world. I see posts every day from people about reminding people, imploring people, register to vote, register to vote. I see people decrying unjust policies, decrying unjust death. I see people constantly arguing about who the true church is. Maybe you're one of them. If you're a true Christian, you'll do X, Y, or Z. You won't do X, Y, or Z. No, they're not true Christians over there. We are the true Christians because we understand what God's love is really like. We are waging God's battle against this unjust power. I saw a video this week of a man walk up to a police car and shoot point blank at officers. I saw news sources barely cover it. I see fires burning. I see pandemics boiling. I see people politicizing everything, waging a war with the enemy over there. I saw a post about loving your neighbor, and then it listed out the various types of neighbors you should love. You should love the neighbor who doesn't look like you or think like you. And then it listed, doesn't vote like you. And I was curious, so I read the comments and just what I expected. One person replied and said, sorry, in this day and age, no more to the vote like you. Don't let's not pretend like we don't feel a revolutionary zeal within us. The same was true in the first century. And so today, what I want to do is now that we have this idea of what the kingdom of heaven is, I want to look at the second part of Jesus' message, where he says, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. Next week, we're going to talk about belief, but today I want to double click on repent. What does it mean to Repent. Uh, my dad always taught me growing up the uh, three degrees of repentance. You have regret, remorse, and repentance. And I don't know if it's scientific, but it worked for me. Regret is when you sort of, you're sorry you got caught. You start to feel sorry about something. Maybe not what you did, but you, you're sorry that you got caught and what happened. Remorse is actually you're sorry for what you did, what you said, how you're thinking about something. But repentance is going. To the very end, and saying, Not only am I sorry about what happened, but I am fundamentally changing my mindset about this thing. I am fundamentally reorienting my life so this thing doesn't happen again. I mean, maybe it's kind of like I'm not from New York City, so, and, and when coming from the outside, it was like, Man, I can't wait to visit Times Square. And then I got here and I repented and I said, you know, I will. I am sorry, Lord, that I ever thought that I should take my friends and visitors to Times Square. I will will fundamentally reorient my life so that I will never do that again. So when Jesus says, hey, look, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. For Israel to repent means it is what Israel must do if her exile is to come to an end. And it's simple, I already hinted at it. Be ready for war. Armed resistance, that's what they're thinking. Grab your swords, let's go to war. Jesus is the representative of Yahweh. He's saying, follow me. I'm restoring his kingdom. Jesus says to all of us, follow me. I'm restoring the kingdom of justice and righteousness and peace. And I will establish a land of true lasting peace. Repent of the ways you are doing things. Come after me. So Israel's imagining, okay, we're going to war. And then we read the accounts of Jesus's ministry. And what we see in Jesus's ministry is not an assault on Rome, which Israel imagined. They thought, okay, we're going to war against Rome because Rome is holding us captive. That's the kingdom oppressing us right now. What we see is not an assault on Rome, but an assault on something completely different. Jesus heals the sick. He heals the Jewish sick, but he also heals the Roman sick. Jesus preaches forgiveness for the Jews, but also for the Romans. And and this forgiveness doesn't have to happen at the temple either, which Israel imagined. Forgiveness only comes through the temple, the sacrifices, the offerings. Jesus says, you don't need it anymore. It's redundant. I am the new temple. It comes through me. Jesus cast out unclean spirits in Romans and in Jews, in sinners and in tax collectors. And what that means when you hear sinner and tax collector, I just want you to think about that group of people or that person that you cannot stand. You can't stand them. Jesus is over there with them. He's befriending them. Jesus disregards the entire family unit, which was like the building block of Israel. His mother and his brothers came to call him. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of God. Jesus disregards the temple, as I said. He says it's redundant. One greater than the temple is here. Jesus eats with the enemy. He eats with sinners, tax collectors, Romans, people of high and low status. He eats with everyone. He eats with Antifa. He eats with the alt-right He eats with the left and the right. He eats with that person that you're like, there's no way Jesus is eating with him. He's eating with them. What's he doing? See, Israel expected Jesus to destroy Rome, their enemy. But instead, Jesus starts carving up and destroying Israel, creating a new Israel of both the pure and the morally impure of men and women, even some Greeks and Romans are there, all gathered around him. And it's not like he was hiding it. He told them from the start. He goes, you, thought, you think Rome is your enemy, but they're not. The true enemy, the last enemy standing in the way of God reigning with his people is not Rome, because Rome's will come and go, just like Babylon came and went, just like Persia came and went, just like America will come and go. It's not Rome. The true enemy, the last enemy standing in the way from God truly becoming king on this earth is Satan, the Satan. In the the Greek you would read or the Hebrew you'd say the Satan. This dark power, this force, this spiritual power that is at work in all opposition against the living God through Jesus. Jesus's kingdom is set over and against Rome. Sorry, it's set over and against Satan not Rome. And see, we live in a society right now that we think it's Democrats against Republicans and it's poor against rich and it's simple against intelligent. It's coastal against Midwest. It's city against rural. It's pro-life against pro-choice. And Jesus is like, no, it's me against Satan. That's the battle that's being waged. That's the true battle. And all those other options and different ways that again, with remembering common grace that have elements of truth and light in them are not the ultimate truth and life and light. That's only found in me. And so here's the crazy and offensive part. You ready? This is the offensive part. Israel thought Jesus was their king opposing Rome as the enemy. But when you read the accounts of Jesus's ministry, Rome never opposes Jesus. Who opposes Jesus throughout? Israel. Israel opposes Jesus throughout. And you see everywhere he goes, Jesus is constantly opposed and ultimately crucified by those who were following him, by those who thought he was their king. Because Israel thinks he's being, Jesus is being led by Satan because Yahweh's representative would not act like this. See, repentance, when Jesus says repent and believe the good news, Israel thought that means we need to get ready to go to war and Jesus is like, actually, I want you to abandon your revolutionary zeal. Repentance is actually taking your eyes off of the enemy you think that you're opposing and putting it on the true enemy the kingdom behind the kingdom that is at work everywhere. And here's here's the offensive part. The Satan, when you do that, when you take your eyes and you start looking for the spiritual kingdom that's at work behind everything, you recognize something. The Satan is not at work within Rome or not just at work within Rome. The Satan is most at work within Israel. Repentance is to recognize the true enemy. And the true enemy, friends, is not the alt-right. It's not the alt-left. It's not right or left. It's not center. It's not systemic racism. It's not wokeism. It's not white supremacy. It's not social justice warriors. The true enemy is none of those places. The true enemy is the Satan that is at work to some degree or another in us. See, here's here's what N.T. Wright says. He goes, heavy irony swirls in clouds. It was because Jesus refused to fight the battle that his contemporaries wanted him to fight, that he found himself fighting from his point of view, the true battle against them, or rather he would have said against the real enemy whom he perceived to be operating through them. So if we want to bring it home, here's what God is saying. Do you know the greatest hindrance to God bringing his kingdom to earth right now? It's you. Or rather, it's the one who is at work to some degree or another within you, within me, obstructing the full light of Jesus from working within me, his church. The Satan is not at work within that group over there. The Satan is at work in you, the Satan is at work in us. You think you see clearly, and yet you are blind. How can you remove a speck from their eye with a plank in your own? How can that be? And Jesus, Jesus is calling all of us to repent. The kingdom's here, he says. Repent and believe the good news. Abandon your revolutionary zeal. Abandon your worldview. Abandon the narratives in your head and identity. Come to Jesus. See the true enemy that's at work obstructing you from being fully in love with him, following him. See him, repent, feel the weight, feel the weight of how you have lived a blind life, relying on your own wisdom, relying on other sources of wisdom instead of his face alone, his glory alone. And here are just some examples that I wrote down. If you find yourself talking more, notice I'm not saying not talking at all, but if you find yourself talking more about the election of 2020 than about how good God has been to you through Jesus Christ and how much you love him, you're being worked on by the Satan and you need to repent. If you find yourself angrier about how the other side is breaking society rather than how the powers of darkness are at work in keeping God away from you and his people, you think that the enemy is them instead. Not the Satan behind them that is keeping God from his people. If you're angry at that, you're being worked on by the Satan, and Jesus' light is not fully within you, and you need to repent. If you look at someone else's ideology and you see, view them as inherently oppressive, and therefore you cannot seek friendship or love or see the humanity in them, then you are not seeing as Jesus sees, and we need to repent. If you find yourself prouder and louder about some aspect of your identity, more than a prouder and louder about how good God has been to us in this world, this wretched sinner cut off from his love, and we are being worked on by the Satan and we need to repent. If we find ourselves more concerned with legislation and others' choices than our own choices of how we're living and whether we're pursuing God with all we have desperate to have more of Jesus, to follow him unto death as he calls us to, then we are being worked on by the Satan. If we are more concerned with our mistakes or our shame or our sin, rather than, rather than knowing the grace of God in Jesus and the face of love, then we're being worked on by the Satan. And if, as I'm speaking this, your first reaction is a prickliness, or maybe... In the biblical record, they would call it a gnashing of teeth. I don't like what's being said. And not a cutting to the heart and a pain and an eagerness to know God's grace and his truth, to give up whatever he asks and to follow him alone, then we're being obstructed by Satan. And the word of Jesus to us would be repent, change your thinking. They're not the enemy. The enemy is the Satan and the enemy is at work within us. And if we would but repent and allow his light and life to dwell fully in us, his church would be set free in a way that would be compelling to our wider society in a way that it's not right now. Repent, care more about the kingdom of Jesus than the kingdom of America, than your own kingdom. Turn your eyes onto the true enemy and his work in you. And I realize, guys, I realize that perhaps what's coming to your mind is according to the prevailing wisdom of, of our age, of our society, I am the least trustworthy. I am male, I'm white, I'm Christian, I'm heterosexual, I'm cisgender. I am the most blinded according to the prevailing wisdom. I am the most untrustworthy. And yet I would remind you guys, what we said from the start, what are we preaching? What am I preaching? I'm not preaching myself. I'm not advocating for myself, but for Jesus Christ and Him alone. And myself as your servant, I'm not holding on to anything. You can have it all. You can take everything from me. What do you want? It's yours. I'm not holding on to a thing. I give it all up. I renounce it all. I lay it all down. If I may but seize the pearl of great price. If I may but know the sweet grace of Jesus over and over and over. Take my life, take my family. I will not fight to retain it because I know the one who has come and I know the one who has life and death in his hands. I know where the true battle is being fought and I want more of Jesus. I repent. I repent of all the ways that I've cared for things more than I've cared for God. And that is what we are being asked to do. Guys, if we are truly going to see and know the light of God that displays in the glory of Jesus Christ, then what are the things coming into your heart that actually you're not willing to let go of? As I spoke a little bit, maybe they are trembling. Maybe you're like, ah, is that, is that what he's asking me to let go of? Yes. And to say, I love you, I choose you more than I want this thing. And what you'll find is that often those things aren't bad, but when they become most important, that is the work of the Satan behind it. And we must let it go. Is your political zeal, is your ideological zeal, is your identity zeal, is your righteousness, is your deconstruction of that other group leading you to abundant life? Are you experiencing peace are you experiencing joy? Are you experiencing grace? Can you look at people and see them as God sees them, whoever they are? Can you eat with anyone? If not, then there's still something holding us back from Jesus. And my invitation, God's invitation for all of us is to let it go because he promises in him is life to the fullness. I wanna invite the band back up. Friends, when you, uh, when you look at revivals throughout history, do you know what you see? All revivals, when God restores the heart of his church, they all start with united repentance. They start with the church that says, God, we have not loved you as you deserve to be loved. We have not seen the true enemy. We've actually been fighting all the wrong battles. We've looked at all the wrong places and for for your kingdom to come it starts with me. You're opposing me, God. You're looking at me and you're saying there are things that are holding me back from fully living in you. And it starts when the people of God say God, God, you can have everything. You can have it all. I hold nothing back from you. And so what I'm going to invite us to to do in this moment is sing a song of repentance. And all of us together are saying, "Lord, we have nothing. We are nothing." We are nothing but your children saved by your grace, by you coming to earth. And wherever you are, wherever you're tuning in from, I would invite you to put your hands out, to maybe fall on your knees and to see what comes to the surface, to see what God is pointing out and ask, is it making you joyful? Is it leading to love? Is it leading to truth or is it leading somewhere else? Because if it is, then let it go. Ask God to fully inhabit you and watch how his grace changes. So let's sing a song of response.